I invite you to turn uh, in the scriptures to Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. And we're going to read this passage together. Luke 5, beginning in verse 27. And I invite you to stand for the reading of the Word of God. Hear now the living and abiding Word of God. After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house, and there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Amen. This is the word of God. You may be seated, and let's go to the Lord in prayer as we look to this passage. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the time that we have to be in in the Word and in the Gospel of Luke this morning. As we are confronted with the words of Christ, we ask that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit that these words would uh, not be dead words, but living words, as they truly are, the words of God, and that they would speak to our hearts. Uh, please give us uh, a right spiritual understanding of these things, uh, that we might be built up in the faith, and we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, I'm thankful to be with you all again this morning. Uh, I think I was here maybe six months ago or so, somewhere in that vicinity of time, and as I was thinking about what message to bring This morning, uh, I've been preaching through the Gospel of Luke on Sunday evenings and wanted to pick a passage that encapsulated well something very central, something very important. And what is important here is what Jesus tells us about his purpose in coming to this earth. Why did he descend from the heights of glory and become man? Uh, For what purpose did he come? And Jesus tells us, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners... To repentance. This describes his purpose, one of his purposes in coming. And we, we remember the words of Paul, uh, he says in, in 1 Timothy, he says, This is a faithful saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. This is a very central passage then in understanding the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the most common barriers people have to receiving the message of the gospel is their own self-righteousness. That certainly was the case with the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers of Jesus' day. They could not make sense of Jesus because they didn't think that they needed him. They were looking for a Messiah that would fulfill their selfish interests rather than taking care of the real problem that they had, which was their sinful and fallen condition. And so as we look at this uh, narrative, this brief passage of the calling of Levi, the tax collector, which is another name for Matthew, the tax collector, we find that this is a very important passage in laying out for us the heart of Christ, uh, how he views sinners, how he views those sinners who come to him in particular. 
There's a hymn that we sometimes sing at Reformation Church called, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Wretched. I'm not sure if y'all sing that hymn from time to time. But that hymn, I think, describes well what I want this message to be about and what I believe this passage is about. And I want to read a few lines of that hymn for you. Uh, The first uh, two verses, it says, Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. So the, the, the hymn answers the question, what is the fitness that you must have to come to Jesus? What makes you qualified, so to speak, to come to Jesus? And what this hymn tells us is, is just right in light of our passage. It is all that you need to have is to feel your need of him and then to come to him. Jesus did not come to call the righteous, he says. He did not come to call those that are particularly gifted, particularly useful, particularly good in this world. He came to call those who have nothing to offer Jesus until he remakes them. He comes with his pity and his power to save us. And so that is what we see in the case of Levi, in the case of the tax collectors, and really in the case of all the disciples once they realize their need for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one of the amazing things about this passage is that it describes the conversion of somebody that from a worldly standpoint, nobody would have thought ever would have been converted. If we're thinking on a human level, if we're thinking in terms of human possibility, we think Levi, the tax collector, redeemed, saved from his sins. This would not have made sense to the people of Levi's day. And in fact, it was such a shocking thing that we find the Pharisees, of course, frustrated and frustrated frequently with Jesus because of the company that he chose to keep. And so as we look at the calling of Levi, we we find that Jesus saved all different kinds of people. That's a very encouraging reality as you think about the makeup of his 12 disciples. I was trying to put his disciples into some different categories and Granted, many of them we don't have a lot of information about, but you do find some interesting contrasts. For example, you have uh, one of the disciples named Simon the Zealot. Now, that means that Simon was a hardcore political conservative, if you will. Simon was a man committed to the overthrow of the tyranny of the Roman government. He wanted to see that coming to pass. And so if you think of of the makeup of a Simon-like person, this is the kind of person that might have been on the uh, steps of the Capitol January 6th, if you were to place him anywhere in terms of a modern perspective. So this was the hardcore political conservative. This was a big thing for Simon. Jesus saves Simon the Zealot. And then you have other categories. You have the, what I call the average blue-collar workers. Let's think Peter, James, and John. These guys just, just trying to get by. They're fishing day after day, just trying to make a living. Maybe they had their opinions about the political environment, but their main focus was fishing and taking care of their families. They're doing the daily grind. You find many people in this category. Jesus saves them as well. And then you have Levi or Matthew, the tax collector. And I think this is somewhat humorous to have Simon the Zealot on one side and then Levi the tax collector on the other side who represents in his office the tyranny of the Roman government itself, the oppression of the Romans. 
uh, interesting how Jesus brings together these disparate people and makes them a new humanity and has them leading his, his church. It's a remarkable thing. Now, what I find encouraging about this list of Jesus' disciples is that Jesus saves all different kinds of people. Remember, we go back to the hymn. The only fitness he requireth is that you feel your need of him. And that's what we should find in the church. We should find a mix of people from different backgrounds and ideas and perspectives and giftings. And Jesus, he brings them all together in in unity and harmony in a way that could never really happen in the world. And then they love one another and they... They worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what what we should take from this, brothers and sisters, is that if you know that you're a sinner, if you know that you're in need of Jesus Christ, and you go to him in faith, he has promised, the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Levi the tax collector is evidence of this. So let's look at verse 27 again, this very brief description of Levi's calling to apostleship and discipleship. After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. Now, I want to dig a bit into the background of Levi, where he's at, what he's doing here uh, in this particular context. And in this part of God, the Luke, uh, Luke's gospel, Jesus is near the Sea of Galilee. This is likely where he was, was somewhere near the Sea of Galilee. And we know from history that there were these different uh, custom booths, is what they were called, or tax offices, as it's translated here, and they would be upon these major roads and routes that would take people through Palestine, sometimes from Syria all the way down into Egypt. There were certain common trade routes, and so the government had established these tax custom booths that would check people on the way. They would stop people, and then they would tax them a customs toll, Uh, depending on what they had with them, what they were selling, where they were going, and so on. Now, as a tax collector representing the authority and the control of the Roman government, Levi would not have been a beloved figure by almost anyone, except perhaps his fellow tax collectors and those that associated with them. The average Galilean or Judean, he would not have wanted to have anything to do with Levi. Now, there's some cultural distance here in terms of how we think about tax collectors. Uh, We might think of the IRS, and of course, none of us could say that we love the IRS. We like the IRS. But I don't think that we grasp the level of detestation uh, that these people had about tax collectors. There was such a significant level of reproach to those that were in this kind of profession And there is a reason when Jesus spoke about church discipline in Matthew 18, that when he describes the final step of church discipline, what we sometimes call excommunication or excision from the body of Christ, listen to what Jesus says uh, to his disciples in Matthew 18. He says, and if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. I always thought it was interesting that Everybody's supposed to know what that means, that he's a tax collector, that's how you are to regard him. And so everybody knew, these readers of of Matthew's gospel, and ironic that Matthew, the tax collector, is the one that wrote this gospel, that they were to be regarded as tax collectors. You don't have anything to do with them. They're considered to be outside of the body of Christ. They're considered to be characteristically unbelievers. They did not worship the Lord. They were given to covetousness. They were people that oppressed others. They took advantage of people. 
And the, the life of a tax collector was one that gave them all different kinds of opportunities to indulge their covetousness by lining their own pockets. The level of accountability for them was not very good. And it would seem difficult for somebody that was in such a profession to come out of this idolatry of money and covetousness and follow Christ. Jesus even said as much. He said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples say, then who then can be saved? And he says, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. Thankfully, brothers and sisters, with God all things are possible, and thankfully Jesus has the power to save those that we could, we could not save, we could not change the heart of. Now we don't know Levi's particular lists of sins, every person's unique, and yet we know that in light of his profession, it was probably a difficult challenge for him to come out of such a life. Now, we get a sense of how negatively tax collectors were viewed if you look at some of the Jewish writings that are uh, from around the time of Christ. And I found some helpful information in Alfred Edersheim's book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. You may know about Edersheim. He was a Jewish convert to Christianity in the 1800s, and he was an expert on Jewish literature and such a helpful resource in understanding uh, the Gospels in in the time of Christ. And we find an example of how negatively these people were viewed in the Talmud. And the Talmud actually distinguished between two different types of tax collectors. They put them in classes. They're both bad, but different classes of them. There were, first of all, the general tax collectors known as the Gabai. These were just the average, everyday tax collectors. But there was a worse category. And that were the custom house officials, those that ran toll booths like Levi was running. These men were known as the Mokis. The word mokes means oppressor. That's what they named them, oppressors. Now listen to what Edersheim says about these mokes, these oppressors of the custom booths like Levi. He says, There was a tax and duty upon all imports and exports, on all that was bought and sold, bridge money, road money, harbor dues, town dues, etc., The classical reader knows the ingenuity which could invent a tax and find a name for every kind of exaction, such as on axles, wheels, pack animals, pedestrians, roads, highways, on admission to markets, on carriers, bridges, ships, on crossing rivers, on dams, etc. But even this was as nothing compared to the vexation of being constantly stopped on the journey, having to unload all one's pack animals when every bale and package was opened and the contents tumbled about, Private letters opened, and the Mokis ruled supreme in his insolence and rapacity. Rapacity simply means aggressive greed. These were greedy men, and they found this opportunity that when somebody came along with all their possessions, they said, rip everything apart, we're going to tax everything we can, I'm going to line my own pockets and take advantage of you and oppress you. And, and so the Talmud goes on to say about the, this category of tax collector, these oppressors, he says, there was never a family which included a mokus in which everyone in the family did not eventually become one themselves. In other words, if you're an oppressor, you are contagious with your oppression and everybody's affected by your defiling covetousness and greed. Now, I say all of that for you to get a sense, again, of what it is like for Levi to be called out of this life into a life of discipleship and faith in Christ. And so I I so appreciate that the Lord Jesus chose from among all of these men to show us, to demonstrate to us 
his abounding mercy to the chief of sinners, which is fundamentally all of us. So listen to what happens when Jesus says those two words, follow me. Verse 28. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Very simple. Very straightforward. Some people read this and they think, did Levi know anything about Jesus? Did he have any background at all? What did he he think when he heard those words, follow me? Well, the text doesn't tell us how much uh, Levi knew about Jesus at this point. Of course, remember that Jesus, he's going all around Galilee, he's preaching amongst the peoples. It is very likely, I would think, that Levi had actually heard some of the message of Christ before this. I can't say that for sure, but he very well may have had some background. Whatever the level of background is, this is the point that I want you to see in terms of the call of Christ. When Jesus calls someone to follow him, that call is effectual. It is a call that accomplishes what he intends by it. Now, sometimes we talk about the the general call of the gospel. The gospel is preached to the world, and not everybody responds to it. And there is that category of a general call. But there is another category that scriptures talk about, and it is what we call effectual calling. It is a call that is issued by the Lord Jesus Christ by means of the Holy Spirit to awaken sinners to life and to transform them such that they will respond to that gospel and they will follow Jesus. And I think that is what we see in the case of Levi. When Jesus says those words, follow me, Levi follows. Keep in mind, this is the the Son of God who is himself the creator, the one who called the worlds into existence. He can certainly call a sinner to follow him, can't he? Now, we, we think about effectual calling, and the Westminster Shorter Catechism gives a good description of this. It says, what is effectual calling? Question 31. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds and the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills. He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ, freely offered to us in the gospel. And that's what we see with Levi. Once, I believe, his will had been bound into the sin of covetousness. He was committed to his life. And and however bad his covetousness was, every unbeliever is committed to their idols. It doesn't matter which idols they are. But when Jesus says, follow me, that will is renewed. And that call is issued. And Levi forsakes all and follows Christ. Now, we might look at an example and draw the wrong application that whatever profession you're in, if you want to follow Christ, you've got to leave it behind. In the case of Levi, he did. He left his profession behind because this was a call to full-time ministry in following Christ. Of course, John the Baptist told the tax collectors when they asked him what to do in terms of repentance, he didn't tell them they had to quit. He says, collect no more than what is appointed for you. He called them to justice and truth. But what it does illustrate for us is that the call of the gospel, the call to discipleship, is a comprehensive call upon our lives. It does mean that we forsake all idols. It does mean that we we dedicate our lives to one purpose, seeking the kingdom of Christ and its righteousness, and that Christ becomes the treasure of our hearts, that which controls us. It becomes our aim, our central aim in life, is to follow him. And so following this call of of Levi, we see next that Levi hosted a dinner party at his home. And that's what we come to now with verses 29 through 30. Then Levi 
gave him a great feast in his own house, and there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, if you study the Gospel of Luke, you will find that rejoicing and feasting always go together. There's many dinner meals recorded in the Gospel of Luke. Some of them are with tax collectors. uh, Others are with Pharisees. And here's something really interesting about that. Every time he uh, uh, dines with the tax collectors, it goes really well because people repent. Every time he dines with the Pharisees, it doesn't go well. They don't repent. There's three occurrences of dining with the Pharisees, and in each case, there's some issue. Simon the Pharisee in Luke 7, he doesn't understand the sinner woman at Jesus' feet. He says, what, what is this woman all worked up about? And, and on it goes throughout the Gospel of Luke. And so what I think Luke is portraying to us in these different meals is that Jesus dined with both Pharisees and tax collectors in order to save them from their sins, but only one category really responded to that call. Now, what we also find is that the purpose here is to see the rejoicing that comes when people repent, when sinners repent. We find this in Luke 15. You remember the parable of the prodigal son? The the son comes home, and they throw a big feast and a big party, and they say, my son who was lost is now found. He's repented. There's more joy in heaven when one sinner repents. And what does the older brother think, representing the Pharisee? He's not excited. He's thinking, why are we throwing this big party for this louse of a guy? We find the same thing in Luke 19 with Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Jesus greets him. He says, Zacchaeus, I'm dining at your house today. And then while Jesus is dining with Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus repents. And he says, I commit to a fourfold restitution. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. So I think that's what Luke is portraying to us in this dinner party at Levi's house. It is fitting that now that Levi had decided to follow Jesus, he wanted to share Jesus with all of his friends. He had found new life in Christ, and so he brings all of his tax collector friends together and all those associated with him, and he says, you need to come listen to this this person. He is the Messiah. He He has called me into a new life. And what we see here is that repentance and new life in Jesus Christ is cause for rejoicing and cause for sharing. And J.C. Ryle has some good comments on this in his, his comments on the Gospels. He says, Levi regarded the change in himself as an occasion of rejoicing and wished others to rejoice with him. And if we are converted, let us rejoice likewise. Nothing can happen to a man which ought to be such an occasion of joy as his conversion. It is a far more important than event than being married or coming of age or being made a nobleman or receiving a great fortune. It is the rescue of a sinner from hell. It is a passage from life to death. It is from, from death to life, I should say. It is being made a king and priest forevermore. It is being provided for both in time and eternity. It is adoption into the noblest and richest of all families, the family of God. This is what they were doing, is they were rejoicing in the goodness of God and the, the mercy of Christ. And so if we would have the heart of Christ, brothers and sisters, we need to be those that are on the edge of our seats, so to speak, anticipating repentance, anticipating faith in Christ, anticipating sinners turning to him. This should be that which gives us the greatest joy. Because if the angels in heaven are rejoicing over this, we better be joining them. We should be rejoicing with whatever the angels rejoice in. 
But the Pharisees were not rejoicing, as we see. Uh, They did not rejoice in such things. And so we come to Jesus' response to them in verses 31 and 32. Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Pharisees never appreciated Jesus' interaction with these tax collectors and sinners. That was just this general category of wicked people that that associated with tax collectors. and, And they could not fathom that the Messiah, the Holy One, the one that would come to redeem Israel, would spend time with such people. This made no sense to them. Should not surprise us in light of who the Pharisees were. The word Pharisee means separated one. They were separated. They they considered themselves to be those that were ritually clean, and they had separated themselves from the dregs of society. They were extremely fastidious about their cleansing rituals and their observance of the law and all the particulars. And of course, these concerns for righteousness are not bad in and of themselves. We are called to be Jesus' holy people. We are called to have a concern for righteousness. But they had a wrong conception of these these meals that Jesus had. They did not understand what Jesus was doing. For them, to come into contact with tax collectors and other sinners was by definition defiling. They, They could not come into contact with such people, they believed, without being defiled. And they said, if we're going to keep ourselves holy, we cannot get near these people. We certainly cannot eat with them. But the Pharisees were not understanding what Jesus was doing. They were not understanding that Jesus did not draw near to these tax collectors to justify them in their sins, to encourage them in what they were doing. He came to heal them. And the Pharisees didn't get this because they themselves did not see their need for healing. They did not know that Jesus had come as a great physician. And they didn't know that they themselves were the subjects that so desperately needed a physician. And so in light of that, that is why they they complained. They did not know that no matter how much they washed their hands, which they were very particular about, their hearts were still not clean before God. Their hearts were defiled before him. And so they misunderstood what was taking place. And from this position of self-righteousness, they stood outside that house of Levi and they scoffed and they pridefully rejected what Jesus was doing, thinking that to do so was unrighteous. This this pattern of self-righteousness that the Pharisees evidenced is just found all throughout the Gospels. It's such a common pattern. And one of the parables that Jesus tells us in Luke Chapter 18 is also, again, about a Pharisee and a tax collector, a favorite contrast that Jesus would bring out. Uh, Luke 18, 9 through 12. Now listen to how Jesus begins this parable in Luke 18. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other A tax collector, the Pharisee, stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. 
Now that's the text, that, that's the Pharisees' words here. But notice how Jesus begins. He says, He told this parable to those people that trusted in themselves. Two effects of that self-trust was they thought themselves righteous and then they despised others. They looked down on the other people around them. They had so puffed themselves up that they were on this pedestal of their own creation and they looked down upon the riffraff below them and they did not recognize how desperately sinful they were. We see another example of this in John chapter 7. The Pharisees had such a contempt for the people. They were proud about their own righteousness, but they were proud about their knowledge. In John 7, 47 through 49, they're commenting on how the crowds view Jesus. And they say, Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. That was their their position of self-righteousness and smug pride. And so Jesus says to them, as they're uh, shocked by his actions, he says, hey, if you're well, you don't need a physician, I guess. If I was to paraphrase what Jesus was getting at, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do have need of a physician. Jesus is saying, this is, this is one of his self-identifying moments in the Gospel of Luke. He says, I am a physician. I am a doctor for souls. Now, we know that Jesus did not actually believe the Pharisees were truly well. He says elsewhere, they're, they're blind in their sin in John 9. They're, they're not in good condition. They're in very bad condition. I mean, just turn to Matthew 23. Does Jesus think the Pharisees are doing well? Woe to you, scribes. Woe to you, Pharisees. You're twice the sons of hell, he calls them elsewhere. They were not in a good condition. But Jesus was speaking from their self-perspective. That's what he's talking about. He says, okay, if you think you're well, then I didn't come for you. And I I can't do you any good in the sense that you need to come to me. You won't come to me if you don't sense that you are a sinner, broken, weak, wounded by the fall, even dead, as Ephesians 2 says. And so as long as the Pharisees thought of themselves as well, Jesus would be of no benefit to them. And so the question for each of us this morning as we come to grips with this text is this. How do I view myself? Do I understand who I am before God? Do I know who I am as the scriptures describe me to be? Do I recognize how needy I am? Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we find this pattern that Jesus, of course, came not to call the righteous, the quote-unquote righteous, the ones that think of themselves as righteous, but he, call, he came to call sinners to repentance. And so the question is, will Jesus benefit me? Well, he will only benefit you if you come to him in your broken condition and ask him to save you. If you come to him humbly, with a broken and a contrite heart. This very same pattern is found throughout the Bible. It's not unique to the Gospels. We find it even in the Old Testament that God drew near to humble sinners. Isaiah 57 verse 15 is one such example. The Lord speaks to his people. He says, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and with him 
who has a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. It's the same with the Lord Jesus Christ. He he is the exalted one, especially now in his state of exaltation. And who does Jesus dwell with? The ones that are at the very lowest point. People in the middle trying to put themselves on a pedestal doesn't dwell with them. And so Jesus came to call the sinners to repentance. That was the purpose of this dinner party, was not only to celebrate the repentance of Levi, but to come as the physician for all these other tax collectors and sinners that had gathered at Levi's house and to to heal them from their sins. And so the Pharisees have, as I said, the completely wrong conception of what was taking place at Levi's house. For them, all they could see was a big old party in which Jesus was being defiled with defiled people. But that's not what was happening. These were doctor's appointments, brothers and sisters. That's what Jesus was doing. The doctor was in, and he was healing those that were in need of healing. Jesus never drew near to sinners in order to leave them in their broken, twisted, chronic, sinful condition. Instead, he draws near to administer life-giving medicine. And the medicine is himself, Jesus himself, giving life to sinners, granting them faith and repentance and remaking them into his image, calling them out of a life of sin into a life of holiness. Now, as I said at the beginning about Jesus' disciples, Jesus saves all different kinds of people. And thankfully, Jesus saves both modern-day Pharisees and modern-day tax collectors. Sometimes you find yourself in either category. There's the dregs of society represented by the tax collectors. Jesus saves them. And Jesus saves Pharisees if both categories of people come to him humbly. Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He did not mean to reinforce to the Pharisees that they were actually righteous, but to condemn them in their pride and self-righteousness. If they had no use for the Messiah, what does that say about them? And that takes us back to the hymn that I began with. I want to read a few more lines of, Come ye sinners, poor and wretched. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. So the Pharisees thought of themselves. They thought, I'm I'm fine, I'm in pretty good shape here. But they were never going to come as long as they had that perspective. The hymn goes on, not the righteous, not the righteous, not the righteous. Sinners, Jesus came to call. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. So as we we think of the words of the hymn, we think of the, the text that we've read. Brothers and sisters, do you sense your need of Christ this morning? Now, you may have walked with the Lord Jesus Christ for 30, 40, 50 years, and, and you've, you've been his disciple. Do you ever stop needing him? Do you ever stop needing his, his life-giving power and transformation in your life, his, his forgiveness that comes through his atoning sacrifice? Of course not. Do you see that apart from the healing hand of Jesus, the physician, you will never be healed? You won't get better. There is no other medication in the world that will do for your sin-sick soul. There is no other surgery that can heal the chronic illness that you have inherited from the fall of Adam. 
There is no other physician that can get the job done. Jesus Christ is the physician for sinners. And so, brothers and sisters, we close in prayer now, and as we do so, we give thanks to Jesus Christ, our merciful Savior, for helping us in our lost estate. And that knowing this, we would, in our conflict with sin, continually come to him, and with the humble tax collector of that parable that we read earlier, we say, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you as a merciful Father. We thank you for showing us your mercy by giving us your Son and sending him to us as the the physician that we needed. Lord Jesus, we praise you as a merciful Savior, and we acknowledge that you have the power to save sinners. You have that life in yourself to give us life. You have the power to heal sinners wounded, sick, and sore because of the fall. We ask that you would grant us, Holy Spirit, that every single one of us, as we are here today hearing this message, would by faith come to Jesus Christ. That we would all by faith believe that he is our Savior and that we would humble ourselves because of our sins and with the tax collector say, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. And we pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.